Morning. My name is Bill Malone. I'm community care pastor here at Mannheim BIC Church. Well, it was a, a good week for us with the baptisms on Monday evening and Wednesday evening. Very special time um, to have that. And I was asked to give a shout out to the uh, Mannheim BIC softball team who got second place in a weekend tournament. So we can give our thanks for that. Now, we're in the midst of a series called Belonging, and it's one of those series where, we're, series where we're looking at what it means to belong to the family of God in the church. And I think belonging is probably one of those very deep-down longings that we all have inside us, that we want to belong to something or to someone. And today we're focusing on the idea of unity, belonging through be, being united through faith in Jesus. Now, I think the connection between belonging and unity comes down to this. Any sense of belonging whether in church or in a family or even in the workplace, it becomes more natural and easier when there's a sense of people working together and they're getting along. It's nothing more complicated than that. And I think that's really where that idea of belonging ties in so well, um, where there's a sense of harmony in relationships, even if there's not always agreement. And this morning, our focus will be narrowed down even more to what this looks like within a church. Now, unity is challenging even when there's a fairly consistent cultural background of people in a church, but it becomes even more challenging when there are people of different cultural backgrounds that, that are part of the church. Now, on occasion when I've been up front, I've mentioned that we had lived for a number of years in England um, for nine years altogether, and you'll recognize this photo. You know what that is? Yeah, Stonehenge, a um, very well-known place, obviously, historically amazing. Um, this place, uh, Stonehenge, was, and you'll notice, this is probably really not the best vantage point for a photo, but you can tell there's like a fence right in front, and you make that out. Um, there's a road that goes surprisingly close to Stonehenge, the A303, and we know it well because that was the main road that we would travel when we went between London and where we lived. And Stonehenge was one of those markers. It was 35 minutes from Stonehenge to where we lived um, when we were there in the 1990s. I have to think if I'm coming back from Baltimore or something like that, 35 minutes from Lancaster, Route 30, light cycle. And Stonehenge, I think for a marker, uh, this wins. Um, A pretty special sort of place. The amazing thing is, you see the people in it? I actually never did that. As often as I drove by Stonehenge, I was always amazed at it. I never stopped to do the tour. And I think, what was wrong with me that I missed that one? Um, When we lived in England, we served in two churches. And it was in those churches that we learned, probably more than any place else or anything else, what it means to to live in unity. Um, The first time we were there was 1987 and 88, and the second for seven years from 1992 to 1999. We lived in two small towns that were not unlike Mannheim in size, uh, both in the southwest of England. You like this? Um, that was 1986 on the left, two kids, and 1992 on the right when we had three. Too bad they're not color photos because both my girls have bright red hair, so it would have been a lot more fun to have seen that. We were missionaries, although we discovered pretty quickly um, living in England, that that was not a good term for me, for us to use for ourselves. It, it just caused all sorts of difficulty. So it was all right. We, we just didn't use it. But we were supported financially from uh, the states because I, neither church that we were in was in a financial position to financially support us. 
It was a formative time for us as a family, um, both family and ministry. Our, all three, or pardon me, our kids, all three of them did more than half of their education in English schools, and it was really a tremendous thing for them. For me, that was my first uh, full-time ministry, um, was being in England. And so it was formative just in, in all sorts of ways that we learned what it was like to live and serve in a different area, very different area. Now, the photo that's going to come up is in a, um, the area where we lived the first time. It's called Devon in the southwest of England. This wasn't far from where we lived, and the colors might be a little bright, but it really did look like that. And I would go to visit a couple in our church who lived in that village, um, a beautiful place. Now, the unity piece especially became important because we were Americans working in churches totally unlike anything that we'd come out of. Um, we had not been in a church that was like the, the two that we were in. And so we realized early on how critical it was to work at and to develop a sense of unity. And I've got to say, neither church had had an American as a pastor either. So they had a lot to learn just from us being there. England really is a different country. Now, we share the same language, although that can be debated. If you pay attention to any English shows you see on the TV, you recognize pretty quickly that they're very different in the way they use words. And while both churches welcomed us with open arms, there was a steep learning curve to learn how to work in the churches and in our communities. There were differences in the issues that mattered to believers, some that they emphasized more than we did here, and some that we, it just weren't on American Christians' radar that, that I discovered. There also was not the polarization. For whatever reason, as Americans, we tend to, to go to extremes. I don't know why, but uh, living in England, they, they didn't go to extremes quite so much. And there were numerous small differences in practice when Christians gathered on Sundays to worship. Just one instance, I didn't know of any church in our nine years and interacting with a lot of different people, not one church had an adult class on a Sunday. Sunday school was for children. That's how they saw it. And I remember at one point thinking, wouldn't it be good to have something for adults? And it just was never going to fly. They, they just, it was just not something on their radar. And so a lot of things like that. I could go on a lot longer talking about what it was like living there. Um, it was a great experience, very difficult at times. But suffice it to say that we learned a huge amount about unity by living and serving together with people who were very different from us. They were different from what we were used to. And yet, this is the bottom line of it, we were united by faith in Jesus. That's where unity comes from, and that was really the bottom line for us. We're going to be looking at a passage from the New Testament that speaks about unity from the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible or device, you can start turning there. Now, interestingly, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about unity. But where it does, it speaks about it pretty strongly, and that's what we'll see in this one. And so the, the point is, even though it doesn't say a lot, it speaks very clearly and unambiguously about it. And so the Lord sees it as important. I'm going to read the first six verses in Ephesians 4. So follow along with me. This is Paul the Apostle writing. It says, Therefore I, a prisoner for, the, for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. 
Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Now, before we look further at these verses, I want to just mention a few things about unity, just so we can be clear what we're talking about. Unity is a sense of harmony and basic agreement. This is the basic way we need to understand it, not only among Christians, but I think it applies to families um, and other groups where it's important to, to have this sense of harmony and basic agreement. This is the ideal that we aim for when we work in a united way. Second thing, at a higher level, Christian unity is based on the Holy Spirit. And it's true regardless of how well or not well that we're doing in showing it. In other words, through faith in Jesus, all Christians are spoken of as being united by the Spirit. And so at at that level, unity is something that has already occurred. It's already true. Again, however we're doing it, expressing it, But that means that it is not something that can be manufactured, but it's something to be maintained. We'll come back to that in a little bit. If we think through why being united is important in church life, um, it's easy to slip into asking from a negative perspective, thinking in terms of how disunity disrupts things. We can think of things like this. Disunity robs a church of its power, causes a church to lose sight of its mission, causes the church to focus on trivial matters, and it hurts our witness to an already skeptical world. What's interesting to me in looking at this passage in Ephesians is that the entire passage is a string of positive attitudes and actions with nothing negative to avoid at all. Very unlike a lot of passages, generally it mixes things up, positive and negative. Here it's all positive. And the unity piece is in there with some very specific direction for us. So let's jump into what it says. Verse 1, again, It says, lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now, this is the primary command of the passage, and everything else builds off it. And there are two pictures that help us to understand it. The first picture is walking. Some of you will have versions that are more literal. It talks about walk in a way worthy of your calling. But lead a life or live is is a good way to understand it. And if you think about walking, it is a great picture because walking... Three things. It's consistent, right? All of us who walk, typically, we're not increasing our speed or or decreasing. We're generally walking at a consistent pace. And so it means that we are basically the same. We don't put on a Sunday face with our Sunday clothes and then behave totally differently during the week. No, it's consistent all the time. It's progressing because we don't walk backwards. Well, we can, but we, we don't. We walk forwards, and so we're, we're looking to keep progressing and, and moving forward. And then it's developing, where the more and further we walk, the better we get at it. It's like children. You know, when they're a year old, they're, they're starting to walk. They're toddling. And so it's getting better all the time. And so that's the idea, that, that there's this developing sense. And the way it's to be understood here, it talks about calling. God's calling is part of a person's salvation. There are other ways we can understand calling, sometimes in terms of a job or, or something specific, a ministry thing. But in, in this sense, it's a spiritual sense in which God invites or calls people who 
who respond to that invitation by believing in Jesus. And then there's a second picture that's here, and this is the root meaning of the word worthy, and that's balancing the scales. And you'll see the two words that we've got up here, and this is the, really what this, this verse is all about. Um, calling and living, and the idea is to balance the two, to make them match up in some way. Um, and really to ask the question, does our lifestyle match up to what we believe as Christians? Does it balance out? Now, if you think about the responsibilities you carry at your job or school, and we all have them, varying degrees of responsibility, but we all have them. The idea is, is similar to, to what we carry, that we want to do and, and say certain things that are appropriate to what we do in the workplace or at school or, or whatever. We, we want to act in ways that match up to what our responsibilities are. And the idea is the same for us as Christians. We have responsibilities, we have understandings of what we are, and so we want it to match up. Now, if I give you a negative example from the workplace, a year ago in the spring, I drove by a a small business where it is somebody who is looking to keep weeds in control, right? They go around to people's houses and take care of their yards. Well, the grass in front of the building was full of dandelions, and I thought, I don't think I would call this guy um, because he's not, even, he's not even balancing out what he says he does with his work with what I'm seeing right in front of me. It's that, that same idea that we have. So for us as, as people that God has called to be as people, he looks for us to live in ways that are appropriate to that, balancing the scales. But as we can easily realize, having the way that we live being so critical doesn't take long to figure out that this poses both opportunities and problems for us. It's well known in today's world that the way that believers and churches live is both a draw to faith, but also repellent to people who aren't Christians yet. When it's being done right, and particularly when we're working together well in a united way, people do take notice of that, and it can be a very attractive sort of draw. But on the other side, when we don't get it right, and most of us can likely come up with some examples very easily, we create numerous difficulties and problems for our witness. Because who wants to come into a place where they're fighting each other, right? We just don't. And so this is where it's so important to balance things out and get it right. Now, as tempting as it might be to pause and rehearse some negative examples, and again, there's numerous ones, that's not our purpose here. And it's not the point of this passage In the next verse, there are what I I interestingly found in both commentaries I looked at this week. There are three qualities that are called graces. The commentators called them three graces, and I really like that. Um, um, Humility, gentleness, and patience. These three qualities that really are very gracious ways in how we relate to each other and how we see ourselves. And they shape how we live and how we express our unity. So verse 2 says, Always be humble. Now, humility is a true view of ourselves from God's perspective. It's a realistic view of ourselves as being valued by God because we're made in his image. Right? That's that's the good side. And we all have it. But then there's that side where we're dogged by our sin. And we all have that, too. This is is a great level. All of us are on the same level level playing field with this one. And so there's that mix-up that we have all the time that that we know in ourselves. And so that dual recognition... I think reinforces that humility is the opposite of pride. 
There are times, yeah, we can be proud of certain accomplishments, but not just in ourselves. Our sin messes things up too much. So humility is the attitude God looks for. Then always be gentle. Gentleness is, as some people define it, power under control. Or we might be able to speak of it as a quiet spirit under God's control. And you'll notice that it says always be humble and gentle. And the intention is that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever the person is, whatever the time, never be without humility and gentleness. They're that critical. It's not just, yeah, sometimes we, we do it. Now it, it's something that will always come into play all the time. And it says be patient with each other. This is long-suffering or being long-tempered. We've heard of being short-tempered, right? A person has a short fuse and they get angry pretty quickly. Long-tempered is just the opposite. It's where it takes a lot to provoke somebody for that fuse to be lit. And so this is one of those things. Patience is, is very often, and I think this is the way God develops it, out, develops it in us, comes because of trials, the things that are really difficult that we go through. We learn from those things, and so there is that sense of being long-tempered that gets developed. And so patience, it's taking the long view, it's not being rushed, and especially when we're dealing with other people. Now, let's think about a situation where these graces of humility, gentleness, and patience might come into play. In a church that has a building project going on, there's a decision to be made about whether or not to use carpet. And you might think, stupid example, what, what are you saying that for? Well, if you've been in churches long enough, you'll know that churches have got in big arguments over something that really does not matter. Thank you. <laughs> but it's still a decision to be made, okay? So there are people that are working on making a decision about this. And there's some sort of disagreement. Now, it's in the way that they approach each other. This is where it's so critical. The relational piece, it comes into play. The way that they make that decision, if they do it with humility and gentleness and patience, it means that they are going to, as they relate to each other, as they talk it out, as they discuss the pros and cons, they will do it in a respectful way with each other. And there will not be the sort of thing of saying, that's a stupid color, that doesn't match anything. Because, of course, and if you make decisions like this in your home, right, you know that there can be disagreements this way. You say something like that, all you're going to do is put somebody off. You're not going to help anything. And so, again, this relational piece is so important. See, if you say something that just offends somebody, not, not in a needful way at all, you head down the wrong path. And so... Whether you agree or not, if you're dealing with each other in respectful ways and with these gracious ways, then we can still get along even if we don't agree about whether to put carpet in or not or all sorts of things because in the end, some of those things just don't matter. But when we have to make decisions and deal with each other, these graces are so appropriate. Now, verse 2 goes on. What I'm calling forbearance. And this is one of the one another's of the New Testament. It says, make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. What's important not to miss with this is that our relationships with each other really do matter. And especially the way that we show unity is very relational. 
Now, some versions will say bearing with one another, and it has the idea of holding each other up when one is down or sustaining each other. It's that, that sort of idea. But it also has the idea of tolerating each other and sometimes even putting up with each other, which I think is really the intention here. Making allowance for each other's faults is really a good way to put it. One of the things I appreciate, appreciate about this is its realism because it recognizes that things are not always all that great with the people that we've got to rub shoulders with. And especially, that includes in church, right? Um, we all have our little quirks and habits that can be difficult to deal with, right? And we find other people with personalities that are different, and they have their habits and quirks. And so sometimes we just rub each other the wrong way. And I think what is so good about this is that it recognizes that, yeah, sometimes we really do need to put up with each other. I'd had a number of roommates when I was in college. In one place, there were five guys in a two-bedroom apartment. So do the math. Figure out I was one of the ones in the three of us in one small room. Wasn't that big a room. One of the guys that, that I lived with, um, name was George, and he was a good guy, but he was a little socially awkward, and he was not always that good about cleaning up after himself. And he was one of the other guys, the three of us in a room, right? And so... Even though we, we were friends, and he was one of these people that was just always very loyal. If, if you were a friend of his, he was going to stick with you regardless. But I think there were times, and we all have them, where really we put up with each other. You know, that's just what it was like. To put it another way, the Bible makes it clear that we're to love each other, and we're even to love our enemies. But it doesn't mean that we need to like each other, or that we need to feel like, Every other Christian, well, we'd be glad to hang out. It doesn't mean that at all. You understand in families that you still love each other, but you might not get along that well, you know? And I think that's true here, you know? And that's where this is, this is making the point, that sometimes we do have to put up with each other. And it's not wrong. It's not that we're doing something wrong. It's just the reality. One last thought with this. One of the truisms of life is that many times people are going through things that we don't see or know. And so having these graces and having this idea of forbearance with each other becomes all that much more important because there might be family issues that somebody just simply can't talk about. It's too deep and personal. Or there might be health issues going on. And so just recognize that. When we're dealing with each other, especially when it's with somebody that, that is ordinarily difficult. And I've got to remind myself of this. We want to give them space, and we want to recognize that sometimes we don't know what's really going on. Now to the specific guidance about unity. In verse 3, it says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Now, even though this is the last directive in the passage, it gets ramped up to an important place because of the way that it flows into the seven ones that you might have picked up on earlier when I read the entire passage. This is where we come to one of those points as well that I made earlier about unity, that there's a unity among Christians that transcends all barriers. It doesn't matter what your cultural background, ethnic background, national background. If you're a believer in Jesus and you meet other believers in Jesus... There's a unity there, and God says it's there. And so it's true, and so what we have to do, because it's true, is just what it says here. To make every effort, to be diligent, to work hard, to keep or preserve that unity. 
See, it's already there. And it's just doing what we can to show that it's there and do it as well as possible. We, again, we don't need to manufacture unity, but we need to maintain it. So how can we keep the unity of the Spirit that God gives His people? I want to mention a couple of things. First one, unity means agreement on the important issues of our faith, but also that it's okay to disagree on less important issues. There are certain basic issues that we need to agree on, and in our passage, in the verses right after what it says about keeping ourselves united, it lists these seven ones. One body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Those are seven of the things that really I think are as basic and as critical as they come, up, come about in the scriptures. And those are things we need to agree on. But then there's a lot of other things that we just don't need to agree so much on. Now, I, I want to say that with this, we can acknowledge that there are some of what I would call watershed issues, things that maybe are not at that same level, not, not quite as basic, and yet there are decisions that are sometimes made in churches or by Christians that because they water down the scriptures or in some ways can come across as, as not really what God wants, that they become elevated to that sort of level. And there are some of you here, I, I know your stories, you've left churches because there were decisions made that really just did not show that the scriptures were valued that highly by God. And so we, again, need to recognize this is one side of the coin, that there needs to be agreement on these basic issues. But again, the flip side, it's okay to disagree about less important issues. And that's entirely consistent from a biblical perspective. There are two whole chapters of the New Testament written, Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, that tell us that there is a lot of freedom for us as believers in Jesus to disagree, to have different convictions about different things. And it really is okay. There is nothing wrong with that. Where that line is is drawn, it's not always clear, but there is a line there, and we are able to disagree on secondary issues. Now, one area where I I just want to suggest this, especially with the way things are in our country at the moment, it is okay for Christians to disagree about politics and politicians. There is no one Christian view of how we need to view politics and politicians. It is not worth dividing over. Seriously, it is not worth dividing over. So can I just throw that out? Just that we keep that in mind as we think about keeping the unity. Second thing to say about keeping the unity of the Spirit is this. And this one is negative, but it comes from another passage. Watch out for divisive people. This comes from the same author, Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, where he wrote this. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith. Stay away from them. Now, here's the reality, and it's a sad reality. There are people who will be divisive in churches. They might not always see it, and we might not always understand their motivations, but they are there. And this is saying, watch out and be very careful and make it plain that we're not going to follow down that road. I would say that we need to pay attention to this warning, especially if there is conflict over minor issues and the personality clashes are starting to get bad. Take a step back and, and make sure that there's not divisiveness coming in in an issue where we really don't need to divide. And sometimes as well, our personalities. Let's take a step back, 
take a deep breath, and, and let's not get ourselves wound up about it. When I first went to East Dartmoor Baptist Church, which was the first church that we went to in England, I actually worked with an English pastor. I was the pastoral assistant, was my role there. And he said something to me early on when we got there. He said, watch out that there might be some people who try to pit you and me against each other. And I remember when he said that to me, thinking, ah, oh, come on, David, that sounds, that sounds a little harsh. But you know what? He was right. And it wasn't always that they were overt about trying to do that or really out to be divisive. They just sometimes did. And so by the time that we finished, um, and it was just a couple of years that we worked together, I was a bit naive when I first went there, but I wasn't by the time I left. Um, there sometimes are divisive people. So belonging. Belonging in unity. It's one of those basic and essential parts of what God sees as important in his church. And for us, we had a lot of prayers for unity during our transition, and it really wouldn't be bad if you pray for the church regularly. Pray for unity. Because there's all sorts of things that can happen where, again, no one is necessarily being divisive or nobody's doing anything, but just things happen sometimes. You know, and, and we need to be constantly alert to this kind of thing and working toward a sense of unity. I have an ancient prayer for unity that I'd like to have us say together as we wind things down. It's a prayer that likely comes from the early centuries of the Christian church. It's called the Liturgy of St. Dionysius. And it's a good one. Um, I've used this before, and I think it's, it's a good one um, for us. And so what I'd like to have us do... Um, is to read it together, okay? And make this our prayer as we finish this off. God the Father, good beyond all that is good, fair beyond all that is fair, in whom is calmness, peace, and concord. Compose the dissensions which divide us from each other and bring us back into a unity of love, which may bear some likeness to your divine nature. And as you are above all things, make us one by the unanimity of a good mind, that through the embrace of charity and the bonds of affection, we may be spiritually one, both with ourselves and one another, through that peace of yours which makes all things peaceful, and through the grace, compassion, and love of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.